I'm Mark Middleton, along with Bill Schaefer, and this is Growing Boulder, produced by the Boulder Media Group. Our products are hope, inspiration. We don't ignore the negative, folks. We just don't celebrate it like most other media organizations. Man, you're off and running today, <laughs> aren't you, Mark? You know what? P- p- picking up on that, we prefer to shine the light on what's possible, not what's wrong. And on today's show, what we know will be an interesting and provocative discussion on sustainability with one of the biggest thinkers in the world. And remember the Yardbirds, a rock and roll Hall of Fame band that was huge in the 60s. We'll talk with one of the founding members who is still going strong today. Plus, a noted physician on how body weight impacts the incidence and reoccurrence of cancer. And author Bob Keeling on the short, tragic, but fascinating life of the legendary country rocker Graham Parsons. Also, nutrition expert Dr. Susan Mitchell will check in with her always interesting common sense nutrition advice. worry about the global population explosion and the ability of our planet to sustain all of these people in the decades ahead? Well, the world's population back in 1968 was what? It was, about, I guess, around 4 billion. Now it's 7 billion, expected to hit 9.3 by 2050, and those, Mark, are conservative numbers. Yeah, Dr. Paul Ehrlich was so concerned about population growth that he wrote the best-selling book, Population Bomb, back in 1968. Fortunately, His most dire predictions of mass famine have not yet panned out. But is it only a matter of time? Let's find out as we welcome Stanford University biologist Dr. Paul Ehrlich. Hey, Doc, how are you? Great to be here. Man, we're, we're, thrilled, we're thrilled to have you. Your book certainly created an uproar, and you've been both praised and criticized for it. The, the, the widespread famine you predicted in the 60s has not occurred, largely because of technical advances in food production. But are we any closer to sustainability today than we were 50 years ago? Can these advances continue to keep pace with population growth? Well, first of all, we're much more distant from them than we were then. Uh, it's also a fallacy to say that the famines that, that we predicted uh, in 1968 haven't occurred. In fact, uh, uh, hundreds of millions of people have starved to death. What we have done is managed to spread it from local famines to sort of generalized hunger over much larger areas. There are, after all, roughly a billion people hungry today and a couple billion more that are malnourished. Uh, and as you indicated, we're, to, we're thinking about adding another 2.5 billion people to the population by 2050. That's many more people than were alive when I was born in 1932. So not a, not a very pleasant prospect, particularly when you realize that the impact of the next 2.5 billion people on our life support systems uh, is likely to be incredibly much worse than the last 2.5 billion. And and just to feed into that, uh, I think it was William Lesher, the former chief economist for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Remember, he said recently we're going to have to produce more food over something like the next 40 years than we have in the last 10,000. That that doesn't even seem possible. Well, uh, the the problem is that, of course, the population bomb was much too optimistic a book. Uh, There was, for example, the time we knew the climate was going to change, but we had no idea how fast or how bad it would be, which we are learning dramatically now. Uh, And, of course, agriculture is our source of food, our main source of food, uh, and uh, agriculture is staggering, and yet it is uh, responsible for about 20% of the greenhouse gases going into the atmosphere. So we're in the terrible position of the more we try and push agriculture, the more we change the climate, the more we change the climate, the tougher it is on agriculture, as people in the Midwest are learning right now. So the situation is indeed dire. Uh, it, it hasn't really changed dramatically since 1968 because uh, everybody who understood arithmetic then understood you can't have infinite growth on a finite planet. We were already hitting our life support systems hard in those days, and now, of course, we're hitting them much harder. Uh, we missed a lot of things in the population bomb, like ozone depletion, uh, the uh, 
resource wars that are now starting up um, and uh, what was happening to biodiversity, which is our life support systems, basically. So uh, uh, if I wrote it again, it would not be anywhere near as cheerful. Wow. That is quite a statement from Dr. Paul Ehrlich, who wrote the population bomb back in the late 60s. You know, Doc, you mentioned many things there that are challenges for human civilization today. And we want to double back and, and talk about a couple of those. But but what, in your estimation now, is the biggest threat or the biggest threats to continued human existence? What worries you the most? Well, what worries me the most is the is the destruction of our life support systems. That is the loss of biodiversity, climate disruption, the fact that we have spread toxic chemicals from pole to pole, which are already showing nasty effects on uh, on the human population, and the fact that the wars over resources could easily become nuclear. It, if the most recent research shows, for example, that if India and Pakistan get into it over agricultural water, which is one of the main resources in threat in that area of the world, and have a small nuclear war using roughly 15 kiloton bombs, which are sort of firecrackers by today's standards, it would destroy the economy of the entire world because of the ecological impact. So um, uh, all those things are extremely worrying. Worse yet, it's not a list of problems. It's a complex of problems. The the toxics affect the uh, the biodiversity. The biodiversity affects the climate. The climate uh, affects agriculture. It's all one huge mess. And, and you know, you mentioned all of those things, and and, and now put that in the context of uh, of the unstable political situ- situation throughout the world. Obviously, if you're telling us that a small nuclear war between you know two countries can can basically bring down human civilization, uh, you, you can no longer make a point for isolation. I mean, we are all affected by what happens elsewhere. Are are you optimistic at all that we can figure this out? Well, I'm optimistic that we could do it, uh, no question at all. But after all, we have evolved our governance systems over many, many centuries. It's quite clear that the nation state, uh, which is about 200 years old, is no longer a satisfactory way of dealing with the international problems we have. Almost all our serious international problems are related uh, to environmental issues. Climate change obviously can't be solved in a single country. The way resources are distributed can't be solved in a single country. How we mobilize our energy can't be solved in a single country. And so uh, much as Americans may not like it, we really are stuck with the rest of the world. Ann and I are heading for China in about a week because if China, India, Brazil, the United States can't take leadership uh, in these areas, uh, we're afraid for our grandchildren. And in fact, we have great-grandchildren to be afraid for. Hey, hey Mark, write this down. Don't invite Dr. Ehrlich to any parties. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, t- write it down. Dr. Ehrlich <laughs> believes in drinking a lot of wine to keep his internal environment in good shape while the external goes down the drain. But but, but listen, the, the, you're not the kind of guy that just you know sends up the klaxon of gloom and doom and doesn't do anything about it because you're actively involved in this incredible thing called the Millennium Alliance for Humanity and Biosphere. This organization promotes sustainability and social equity. Tell, tell us about that. Well, it's, it's, it's trying to get the... Uh, Everybody together, what we call civil society, coordinated to do something. That is, bring in the social scientists, bring in industry, bring in everyday people, uh, and do it internationally. That's one of the reasons we're going uh, to uh, to China, to recruit for the mob there. The mob, M-A-H-B dot stanford dot edu m-a-h-b dot stanford dot edu you can join doesn't cost anything put your own ideas in after all uh ancient white men like me shouldn't be dictating (laughs) how the world goes uh we got to give more power to other people to women for instance if you want to solve the population problem the best place to start is give every woman on the planet equal rights with men access to modern contraception, access to back to back up abortion, good job opportunities, that would probably bring the birth rates down to the point where we would start the needed slow shrinkage. And you know, when you talk about all that food we're going to need in 2050, if we did something about the population situation and there were a billion fewer people, not because they died, but because fewer were born, you'd have a lot easier time feeding them. Hmm. Uh, you know, we're, we're not... Uh... 
you know, of the frame of mind, Bill and I at least, to to dwell on the worst possible situation. But but, but maybe in this case, uh, we should, and, and it's obvious, the worst possible situation here, Dr. Ehrlich, is, is total extinction of the human population. And lest we think it, it couldn't happen, hasn't life been extinguished on this planet a time or two in the past 100 million years? Well, not 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 all life. I don't think there's a real threat of losing all human beings, although that is possible, particularly with the, the deterioration of our epidemiological environment. But nonetheless, uh, what is at risk is all the things all the people listening to this show value. That is what do people really want to be able to do. They want to have decent lives. They want to have food to eat. They want to have reasonable medical care. They want to have access to education. Uh, they want to have plenty of time to make love. Uh, and those are things that are under threat at the moment. And uh, seriously, I mean, we easily could have a collapse of civilization. It's happened many, many times before. The only difference between today and what happened on Easter Island or in the uh, or in Greece or in the uh, Tigris and Euphrates valleys is for the first time in the history of our species, the civilization that's threatening to collapse is global. In other words, we don't have any place to go. There's not going to be any place left over uh, if the whole thing comes down, and it will be very difficult to start it again because we've already used up the rich resources that we originally used to start civilization. And we've got about a minute left, and you've been one of the lead voices on this for decades, as we talked about. I want to point out, you said you were born in 1932. You're 80 now. and That's what they tell me. I hate to think of it. Uh-huh. And, you know, that's part of, of this program, too. At 80, you are still leading the way, still carrying the charge. What What's life like at 80? Are you still able to do that? We've got maybe 45 seconds. Uh, I'm still able to drink wine. I'm still able to admire young women. I, uh, I've been very lucky. Uh, uh, because I think because I exercise and I keep my mind going. I spend about 16. I'm not retired. I'm still chair of our group at Stanford. Um, and uh, I think the advice for everybody is keep going as long as you can. The hell, you've got one life to live. You might as well both have fun and try and make it better for other people. Do you miss a little of the social consciousness of the 60s, Doc? Yeah, I do. Uh, but there are an awful lot of socially conscious people trying to do something today. Go on Twitter and take a look. Yeah. Uh, you know, the 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 and and people like you are trying to change the world. So what we have to do is just keep trying. We don't. When the time is ripe, everything could go in the right direction. What we have to do is figure out a way to ripen the time. All right. Well, keep stirring the pot, Doc, because we really appreciate it. He is Dr. Paul Ehrlich, folks, uh, the author of Population Bomb. And you can find out more about what he's up to today by going to mahb.stanford.edu. Thanks, Dr. Ehrlich. Coming up, talk about adopting kids. The CEO of a major company who has adopted an entire community and is paying for the education of every child from kindergarten through college. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Located in West Orange County, Orlando Health's Health Central Hospital is a full-service hospital with a newly expanded ER as well as top-rated neurospine and orthopedic programs. Learn more at orlandohealth.com. And by The Legacy Life Project from Macbeth Studio, preserving family history, stories, and memories for generations to come by creating personal video biographies of your loved ones. Everyone has a story worth preserving. LegacyLifeProject.com Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton here on Growing Boulder. You know, behind every great company is a great man or woman, and one of the nation's top hospitality executives has a prescription to make America healthier, happier, and more educated than ever. Yeah, his name is Harris Rosen. He's the president of Rosen Hotels and Resorts. He's also 73 years old, but folks, you wouldn't know it. He looks and acts 20 years younger. His key to vitality is regular exercise and a healthy diet, and his passion for health and wellness is isn't limited to himself, his family, or even his employees. Harris Rosen is president and chief operating officer of Rosen Hotels and Resorts and a man of limitless energy. I'm almost 73. I decided many years ago that uh, I wanted my life to be uh, complete. I I wanted to be able to enjoy life. I wanted to be able to do the things that I wanted to do. 
and if one isn't feeling well, if, if, if one is uh, confined to bed, if, if, if one has aches and pains, it's very difficult to do that. So I said, okay, you watch your diet um, and you exercise and um, trust in God and, and, and hopefully the, the, the rest uh, will, will, will come true. The secret to his vitality is a daily swim at the local YMCA. I do about, about a mile and a half, five days a week. Then I walk uh, on Saturday and Sunday and do about three and a half miles each day. So I'm doing about seven walks and about seven swims. To say Harris encourages his employees to also lead a healthy lifestyle is an understatement. He provides supervised programs to quit smoking and lose weight at company expense. And he doesn't stop there. Rosen built an entire medical center where his nearly 4,000 workers receive quality, low-cost care. We have acupuncture, we have chiropractics, we have cardiology, we have radiology, all there in that facility. We have mammograms, so the ladies can go right to our facility and, and, and get done what they need to get done. And he's been providing that health care for 20 years. In those 20 years, listen to this, our health care costs per person, they refer to it as per covered life, has averaged about $2,500. In today's world, the average cost per covered life nationally is around $8,500. We figured that over 20 years, my little company has saved over $200 million by keeping our costs down. Now, we didn't do it to keep our costs down. We did it because it was the right thing to do. But, you know, sometimes, I think often, when you do the right thing, you're rewarded for it. Rosen's two passions are healthy lifestyle and education. He's adopted a poor local neighborhood called Tangelo Park, where he provides free education to every child. And we start when they're two years old, and every two, three, and four-year-old gets a free education right there at Tangelo Park. We have 10 little preschools there, six children per school, and then we mentor them. We work with their parents. Since he started the program, high school graduation rates have jumped from 35% to 100%, and Rosen pays 100% of the expenses for those who go on to college. We pay for their preschool, mentoring, and we pay tuition, room, board, books, travel, everything for them to get to college. And you know what? It's changed the neighborhood. Where there was no hope, now there is hope. Rosen's philanthropy has been recognized by Oprah Winfrey, and his commitment to employee wellness has been recognized by the Central Florida Executive Challenge. Harris Rosen, leading by example, improving the health of his company and the future of his community. And here's something really exciting. Harris is now working on a potentially transformational national program encouraging other successful executives, the top 1%, if you will, to all adopt communities, just like he has with Tangelo Park. It's a privately funded way of creating social support for disadvantaged kids. And with connections like Oprah Winfrey, he may just pull it off, Bill. Mark, he's the perfect example of what our Central Florida Executive Challenge is all about. Harris Rosen, proof once again that a single person does have the power to change thousands of lives by doing the right thing. somebody talk about being on a diet, what's the first thing you think of? Weight loss, right? Well, there are other kinds of diets we need to think about. Health diets, foods that we eat that are proven to increase our long-term health and well-being, and that is a great topic for registered dietitian and expert in the field of nutrition. You've seen her on the Today Show, CNN and the Food Network. Hey, Dr. Susan Mitchell, how are you? Hey, Bill, I'm great. Hi, foodie friends. Grab this week's grocery list. I have five food items you'll want to add, and all of the foods have something in common. They help reduce inflammation in the body, which is tied to many common diseases, from heart disease to some cancers, diabetes, and even stroke. Doctors can measure this level of general inflammation in the body with a blood test called high-sensitivity C-reactive protein, or HSCRP. And consistently eating the five foods I'm going to share with you, which are part of the Mediterranean diet, decreases the level of CRP in the blood and reduces inflammation in the body. And bonus, switching to and consuming foods that are part of this Mediterranean diet often results in weight loss, which also lowers 
reverse markers of inflammation in the body, a very good thing. So the five inflammation-fighting foods start with purple grapes and grape juice, which contain the same polyphenols found in red wine. Bing and tart cherries are number two. Consumed regularly, they lower the CRP level. And did you know the antioxidants in the cherries give them that bright red color? Number three is fish, rich in omega-3 fats, such as tuna and salmon, along with number four, avocado and nuts, which all contain the healthier mono and polyunsaturated fats. Number five, beans and lentils. They help keep your blood sugar and your grocery budget in check. Isn't it interesting because more and more people are pointing to inflammation as like public enemy number one yes. when it comes to causing diseases a- and Absolutely. Illness. And it's something we didn't know about for the longest time. And now we're starting to understand what role that inflammation plays in the disease process. And I love that you help us keep it under control ourselves without drugs and pharmaceuticals and anything like that. All about the food. Great advice that can add time and quality to your life from Dr. Susan Mitchell. Coming up, you may not know his name, but if you grew up in the 60s and 70s, you definitely know his music. A member of a Hall of Fame rock band who is definitely growing bolder. Support for Growing Bolder provided by the Center for Health and Well-Being. Coming soon in Winter Park. Wellness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. I'm Bill Schaefer, along with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Boulder. Our next guest is the drummer for a Hall of Fame rock band, an innovative British band that is known for big hits and three of the greatest rock guitar gods ever. Well said, uh, Billy. The band is the Yardbirds, and their guitarists, of course, included Eric Clapton, Jeff Beck, and Jimmy Page. But the glue that held it all together, as it often is, was the drummer, and he joins us now from the south of France. Welcome, Jim McCarty. Hi, Jim. Hi there. <laughs> Boy, we're, we're thrilled to have you, and we want to talk to you about what you're up to now, how you've remained relevant all these years. Uh, but let's go back, if we can, uh, several decades, because you guys were a struggling London band in the early 60s, and you got your break when you played at the Beatles Christmas show in 1964. What happened? Well, we were uh, we were chosen to play uh, because it was in Hammersmith, which was in um, southwest London, and that was the area where we were. So we were the local band, and um, we were invited to be on, on the you know on the show, and we were we were just one of the supports. And um, there happened to be a publisher in the audience, and he had a, the demo disc of For Your Love, and he thought. Uh, it would suit us, and so he, he got it to our manager, and uh, we, we ended up recording it, and, uh, and it became a big hit, as you know. The great thing about For Your Love is that it sounds as fresh and new as it did when it was released. In fact, it sounded a little bit like this. You know, I I love it, and and I love the story behind it, too, because Eric Clapton, didn't he leave right before For Your Love came out? He did, because um, he didn't like the idea of doing something that was quite poppy for him. You know, he saw us as a blues band, and of course we were. We were uh, doing covers of all the the blues, you know, records we heard coming out of uh, America. And um, he thought it was too poppy, so uh, he wanted to stick to the blues. But, of course, he went a bit poppier uh, along the way. And, and Jim, I heard that when he saw how high it went up the charts, he said, Guys, I was kidding. I mean, well, what? (laughs) Take me back. (laughs) Yes, I probably did. 
And, and of course, the good news for, for the Yardbirds <laughs> is that he was replaced by Jeff Beck and, and later Jimmy Page. Uh, did you have a favorite guitarist among the big three? Well, I always thought Jeff was the, the most, uh, that, of course, they're all brilliant players. Um, I always thought Jeff was the most spontaneous out of them all. Um, he could really play just completely off the top of his head, something really wild and um, very, very inventive. And, uh, he, I mean, he, he would be slightly above the others. And, and Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page actually played together on the Yardbirds for for a period of time, didn't they? How did that work uh, out? For, well, for a few months, yeah, because when Paul Samuel Smith, the bass player, left, um, Jimmy Page was so keen to join us, he, he came in on bass. Mm. So he played bass for a bit, and then he swapped over with uh, Chris Dreyer, the acoustic, you know, the rhythm guitar player. And, um, and we had the two of them playing lead for a few months, which okay. was pretty wild. And they always used to say the Yardbirds, well, oh, full of great musicians and a drummer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> what was, you know, from your seat, you really were, uh, Mark said it in the intro, and he's more right than, than I think people realize. You were the glue that, that held the band together and kept it going, especially with some of the things that you guys went through. What was it like for you to do that? Well, I always considered that uh, Chris Dreyer and myself were the sort of pretty steady ones, um, though that sort of went up and down. Um, but we, 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 we sort of played the, the simple backroom boys uh, part, and um, we let them all get on with it and be, be as wild as they wanted, and pretty well uh, as an anchor, I would have thought, for their, uh, for their antics. You know, before we talk about how you've reinvented yourself as a, as a singer, songwriter, keyboard player, and all of that, uh, take us, uh, let us stay uh, back in the 60s for just a moment, because the London club scene back there had to have been amazing. The Yardbirds, the Stones, the Animals, the Beatles. Did you have any sense that this was a time and a place that people would be talking about forever? Uh, no, not at all. It was all very fast, very exciting. Um you know, it, it all happened very quickly, and uh, uh, you know, it was it was the thought that, that this uh, this was just going to blow over, and we were going to be back in our day jobs. Hmm. What an incredible time, Jim! And you had a great seat, and you were a big part of it all. But you're still doing it. You know, you're still stretching yourself. You're still reaching for more. You've got a great solo act. You've even recorded your own albums. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I, I was. Uh, you know, we've we've got a new uh, lineup now. Yeah, birds were still we're still touring, and uh, we've been touring the last few years. And I've always been quite quite uh, interested in songwriting and um, doing my own stuff. And uh, I I started to go to Toronto uh, to record. Every time I did a tour, I, w I went up to Toronto on the way back and did did uh, a week or so there and gradually built up a built up a repertoire of songs and um finally came out with an album and uh, i i you know thanks to all my friends in toronto that, that helped me do that you know you're a humble guy don't even mention the name of the album it's sitting on top of time basically about living in the present moment is is that something jim that you've had to learn to do uh, or something that you've come by naturally uh, well, I've been through lots of ups and downs in in my career in, in my life. I've I've had quite a, a, an adventure, and I've followed various sort of uh, spiritual pathways, and uh, it's it's been very interesting. And I've found that um, living in that way, living in the present, uh, helps me a lot. And uh, you know, I can be a lot more positive, and that really. Um, that's the only way to be that I can be, you know, and uh, I, I think I put that into that song and into a lot of the lyrics on that particular album. Jim, Jim what do you hope we learn from all that you've been through and all that you've overcome? Well, I think we have to learn that uh, things are really changing so so quickly and um, really to be positive is, is the only way. And uh, I think that there is a way of... Uh, getting through it all and, uh, you know, creating a, a, a better world and a, a better life for, for ourselves. And, Jim, before we let you go in the final 20 seconds here, um, uh, you know, you, you've just had an amazing career. What, what is your audience like today? Who shows up to see the Yardbirds perform? <laughs> well, it's got bigger and bigger in terms of age age gap. I mean, there's some very young 
people, you know, right down in their early teens, and it goes all the way up to um, 60 and 70-year-olds, and quite often there's there's more than one generation of family come to see us. So uh, it, it's quite interesting to see how that's happened. And it's very it's very exciting to see that happen as well. What? And also to get the young kids that are actually mouthed in the lyrics when they when they mm-hmm. see us play. Well, Jim, good things happen to good people, and you're one of the good guys. So I hope everybody supports you. You can check it out and learn more about Sitting on Top of Time. You can also find out if he's touring anywhere near you or the Yardbirds are coming your way at jimmccarty, M-C-C-A-R-T-Y, dot C-O dot U-K. Check him out from the Yardbirds, Jim McCarty. Coming up next, the C word, the importance of a healthy lifestyle and the impact of body size on the prevention and reoccurrence of cancer. That's next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by the Masson Spine Institute, where world-renowned minimally invasive techniques lead to fast recovery. The Masson Spine Institute, excellence in spinal surgery. More information at masonsi.com. And by... Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. Hey everyone, I'm Bill Schaefer along with Mark Middleton, and this is growing bolder. Our next guest is a world-renowned expert on the health impact of obesity who has published extensively on the subject. Yeah, she's the Director of Research and Education for Celebration Health's Metabolic Medicine and Surgery Institute. Say that one more time. Uh, I'm going to just leave it right there, Bill, <laughs> but let's let's get right to uh, Dr. Cynthia Buffington. Hey, Doc, how are you? Hi, Mark, Bill. Hey, uh, l- let's start with, with, with a, a pretty obvious question, I think, to most of us. Uh, there are those who say the obesity epidemic in this country is really more hype than reality. From your perspective, how bad is it and how much of a correlation is there between obesity and disease? Well, definitely, this is a serious, probably the most serious health problem that exists today, uh, not only in in this country, but throughout the world. Um, There's actually and has been an alarming increase in the prevalence of obesity in this country, we now have 35.7% of us that are obese, 68% that are overweight or obese, Uh, 12.5 million of our children, I'm just throwing off the top of my head some stats, but worldwide there are 1.5 billion individuals who are who are obese. And of course, this uh, not only impacts uh, diabetes and heart disease and many other conditions that are caused or worsened by obesity, but also cancer. You know, it's one of those things, Doc, that when we look at somebody else, we can go, oh, look at that person, they're obese. But in ourselves, we go, ah, maybe I need to lose a few pounds and here or there. So what is the definition? How do we know if we're in danger? Well, obesity, of course, is uh, the definition is excessive body fat. But uh, most of the time, uh, we uh, do not measure body fat. That requires certain instruments. So uh, uh, obesity is mainly uh, determined by an index called the body mass index. Uh, The body mass index just takes into consideration a person's height and their weight, and someone is considered overweight if their body mass index is 25, obese if it is 30 or higher. Uh, keep in mind that the body mass index uh, is strongly related to body fat, but isn't always a, a, a measure of such in certain people like pregnant people or, you know, an athlete or something like that. We're speaking with Dr. Cynthia Buffington, who is an expert on obesity and, and especially its impact on our health. And, Doc, obviously being morbidly obese leads to all sorts of bad things. But why does it seem to have such a dramatic correlation on the incidence of cancer? What's at work there? Well, obesity leads to a number, I mean a multitude, of metabolic and hormonal changes that play a role in the initiation of cancer, 
the growth of cancer cells, the reproduction, in other words, the proliferation of cancer cells, the growth of the tumor, and metastasis. And uh, this is uh, when the, the cells break away from the primary tumor and go to other tissues, travel to other tissues, take up residence there, and uh, form tumors in those uh, regions as well. Also, there's behavioral changes, um, uh, Mark, um, uh, the obese are less likely to go to the doctor, especially the morbidly obese. Um, and obesity is a surrogate uh, for other cancer risk factors like poor diet or low physical activity or psychological distress. And not only is there an increased risk for, obese, uh, for cancer among individuals who are obese, but also an increased risk of dying. Uh, large epidemiological studies estimate that uh, greater than 90,000 cancer deaths occur every year in the United States as a result of obesity. Mm. And that has to do with the conditions I just mentioned before, the causes, but also uh, possibly uh, suboptimal uh, uh, treatment, chemo and uh, radiation for people with severe obesity. Man, if we could come up with a pill to cure it, I think everybody would take it. But no, it takes work. So let's talk a little bit about what foods do we need to eat more of? What are the anti-cancer foods? What are the foods that will get us on the right track, doctor? Well, the American Institute for Cancer Research has recommendations uh, based upon uh, uh, the expert panel's report. This is a report that's based upon extensive review of the literature of all the studies that have looked at the effects of body size, diet, and physical activity on um, cancer risk. And uh, they recommend, as do our uh, oncology uh, specialized uh, nutritionists, a plant-based diet. Uh, they even have on their website, that's AICR.com, uh, anti-obesity uh, uh, or anti-cancer foods, and they are also anti-obesity, um, and a list of those how they help to reduce the risk for cancer or slow the growth of certain tumors, uh, how uh, the scientific evidence and even recipes. And uh, this is mainly fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, uh, beans, and other legumes, whole grains. They, they um, recommend that two-thirds of the plate at least be filled with these types of foods. And then they recommend modest intake of dairy and meat to eat, preferably fish, but if you do eat red meat, very small amounts. Uh, make sure it's not overcooked, it's not grilled over charcoal and not fried. Uh, reduce or avoid processed grains, uh, sugar, and, and that's hard to do because high fructose corn syrup and sugars and about all the prepackaged foods that we have. Uh, to reduce uh, also the amount of, uh, of uh, in fact, to avoid processed meats and uh, to uh, reduce the amount of alcohol we drink. Hmm. Uh, one drink per day they recommend for females, two uh, drinks per day for, for males. You know, Doc, we talk a lot about the fact uh, that it's never too late, and that applies to just about everything. And if anybody needs any more motivation, I've read that if you are obese post-diagnosis, you've had cancer, and you lose only six pounds, you reduce the chances of reoccurrence of cancer by 24%. So uh, even if you already are obese, even if you already do have cancer, if you lose the weight, it's never too late to, to make a very positive difference, isn't it? Absolutely true. Um, large amounts of weight have been found to, to uh, for people with severe obesity, uh, have been found to lead to even um, greater protection against uh, the risk for cancer or cancer recurrence. Um, may I say something quickly, though, uh, which was my concern because I am a cancer survivor, and that is there are certain forms of cancer that you can actually gain weight after diagnosis, and that weight gain uh, leads to uh, a very high risk of uh, cancer recurrence and, and mortality. And I didn't realize this. I gained, I'm embarrassed to say this, but over the last three years since treatment and during treatment, I gained a total of 40 pounds, and it's been very difficult to uh, make the changes to lose the weight. Um, the average weight gain um, is anywhere from 5 to 14 pounds, for instance, for someone who has breast cancer. Now, I'm not saying that all types of cancers lead to uh, can uh, uh, treatments can result in weight gain. There are other certain cancers that uh, are associated with weight loss, like gastric and pancreatic and esophageal, and I guess liver in the mouth and so forth. But uh, 
but breast cancer, um, early-stage colorectal endometrial, ovarian, prostate, um, may all uh, be associated with, uh, with weight gain uh, post-diagnosis. It's great practical information that we can all make use of. You know, the bottom line is, folks, we need to be in better shape, period. Watch what you eat. Get out there and do as much as you can. Dr. Cynthia Buffington, fantastic. Out with the truckers and the kickers and the cowboy angels. Coming up, the short tragic life of legendary musician Graham Parsons. That's next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by the UCF College of Medicine, where physicians, scientists, and teachers are discovering innovative solutions for today's medical challenges and bringing them to you. Learn more about the college's physician practice at ucfhealth.com. Subscribe to Growing Boulder Magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingbolder.com slash subscribe. That, of course, Roger McGuinn, a one-time bandmate of the subject of our next interview. I'm Mark Middleton. That's Bill Schaefer. And our next guest, folks, is an author, an Emmy Award-winning broadcast journalist, and an expert on American pop culture. Yeah, for example, his previous works include books on Jack Kerouac, on The Highwaymen, and the Tupperware Corporation. But his newest book is a biography on musician Graham Parsons' Calling Me Home, Graham Parsons and the Roots of Country Rock. And I have to tell you, folks, this guy is our absolute famous, most favorite author going today. Let's welcome Mr. Bob Keeling. How you doing, Bob? Oh, Mark and Bill, I'm I'm just thrilled to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Another fantastic idea to write a book on Graham Parsons. And I know on this one, you took a totally different track that anyone has done yet so far. Well, you know what? There's been so much talk this election season about the I-4 corridor here in Central Florida and the importance of it. And for a long time, I'd been looking for a thread to talk about the amazing music scene we had in this region uh, during the 1960s. And as it turned out, Graham was just the perfect thread because Graham Parsons has such an amazing story here, starting with the garage band scene of the early 1960s. And by the time it's 1968, he's fronting America's most important band of the 1960s on the most important stage in the South, along with Roger McGuinn and the Birds. And it's a pretty amazing story. And you tell it better than anybody. And and, and since you mentioned the Birds, uh, Parsons worked in several notable bands. The Birds he joined in 1968. How important was he to the Sweetheart of the Rodeo album? And why is that considered such a seminal album in uh, American music history? Well, he was essential to the idea of the first highly regarded American rock and roll band, The Birds, heading south, if you will, and doing a full-on country record with no tongue-in-cheek whatsoever. This was Graham's idea to do. And you have to remember the, 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 the time period in 1968 when country music was considered totally uncool, and you, you, there was this huge cultural divide between, you know, the, the hippies of the West Coast and the America love it or leave it crowd that a lot of people assumed uh, represented country music. So, so Graham and Roger and, and Chris Hillman, they were taking a huge risk by doing this, and it turned out they were just way ahead of their time, and they set the stage for the Eagles and all the bands that came afterwards. And and remember, at the time, Graham Parsons was barely 21 years old when he did this, which is just amazing to me. He's such an uh, unusual figure, Bob, because there are people that still revere him to this day, but there are many people that don't have any idea who the guy is or was, and and he was like one of the most unlikely rock stars ever. No kidding. He... uh... One of the things, one of the reasons why people don't know who he is all that much is because, uh, you know, unfortunately he, he died of, a, of an overdose in uh, 1973 when he was just on the precipice of getting the fame and notoriety that, that so many people knew he had coming. And at the time, he had just started recording with an unknown folk singer by the name of Emmylou Harris, 
who he also helped give her, her her start and put her on the road to her Hall of Fame career. So it's almost like Graham was sort of this Johnny Appleseed who just sort of spread the seeds of all these great musical genres and careers. But but sadly, at a time in the early 70s when young people kind of wore their, their addictions as a, as a badge of honor and before we knew how dangerous all that was, uh, it, it, it claimed him, and, and that's part of the tragedy of this story. We want to talk a little bit more about his death, Bob, but, but you mentioned really his final album, Grievous Angel, released after his death. Let's take a listen to just a little bit of Return of the Grievous Angel, which, as Bob mentions, includes uh, his protege, Emmy Lou Harris. Graham Parsons and Emmy Lou Harris. We're talking, of course, with Bob Keeling, who has written a fantastic book on the life of Graham Parsons. And, Bob, one interesting thing you did is you tried to sidestep the whole issue of what happened right after he died because that, you know, that has been rehashed and hashed and hashed, but it's still a fascinating part of the guy's story. Well, that's, that's the way many people know of Graham Parsons. He's the guy after his death whose road manager uh, decided that uh, he was going to take his body and perform this sort of de facto cremation out in the desert at Joshua Tree, California, because he says that's what Graham said he wanted. Roger McGuinn even told me that, yeah, he was there too and, and heard Graham say the same thing. But unfortunately, in the process of doing that, uh, Phil Kaufman was the road manager's name. He took he took Graham's body, stole it from Los Angeles International Airport. He had a hearse and and took it out to to Joshua Tree. Tried to perform the cremation, but unfortunately, the fire went out and and uh, he took off. And his friend's uh, coffin was abandoned by the side of the road to be discovered by park rangers. And it and it really uh, caused Graham's family a great deal of pain. And they told me about that. And but there's been this whole legend that's grown up about that that act, and it's sort of overshadowed Graham and his career and all the important things he did. That's why I wanted to portray him in this book as more of a southerner. So this is largely a cactus-free zone, if you will, <laughs> and it's a lot more about Graham Parsons' legacy of, of his transformative and timeless music, and not all the madness and sadness of the day the music died. You know, Bob, you're 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 known as an author who is a great investigator. You mentioned some of the interviews that you did with his family. What did you discover about Graham Parsons? Obviously, you knew a great deal going into this, but in the course of your research, what did you discover that, that was new material? Well, money doesn't buy happiness. That's one thing I discovered. Uh, his father, his grandfather, rather, was one of the richest citrus barons in all of Florida. And in fact, their family mansion to this day sits in the middle of what used to be Cypress Gardens, Central Florida's first theme park. Now it's a Legoland. And yet his grandfather's mansion is right in the middle of that park because he used to own all that property that were just these vast citrus groves, and they sold it to the popes who developed uh, who developed Cypress Gardens. So, so that's one thing. I mean, Graham's got this Faulkner-esque type story of growing up, and in a way he was a rock star from the very beginning because he, he was just... He, he had this charisma about him, but there was also there was also a line of addiction that ran through his family that was kind of like canker to the orange crop, if you will, and it, it, it just it, it was very very difficult for him growing up, and money certainly didn't buy happiness. And I also made another huge discovery that Graham has a long lost sibling that he never knew about. And it's explained, the context of it is explained in the book, but uh, even the most stalwart Parsons fans are going to find that uh, pretty revealing. In doing the research, Bob, and looking back on Grandma, what was the impact on you? How has this made you grow bolder? Well, I tell you what, I did this story. I, I, I followed this research while I was covering the Casey Anthony case from day one. And this was the best escape from the madness and sadness that surrounded that story, if you will. And it made me bolder because it gave me the opportunity to travel to all of these out-of-the-way places. 
to places like Gulf Shores, Alabama, to interview his niece, to go down to Lakeland, Florida, and discover the very first unlikely place that Graham Parsons ever recorded. So it was just the opportunity to lose myself in this story. And, and to your listeners who grew up in the, you know, the, the rock and roll scene of the 1960s, anywhere in the country, this is also your story, because Graham is very much like so many kids who grew up in the 60s dreaming about being Elvis. But his story uh, was pretty amazing, considering he only lived to be 26 years old. The book is called Calling Me Home, Graham Parsons and the Roots of Country Rock. You will love this book. It's written by the great Bob Keeling, K-E-A-L-I-N-G. It's available at most online booksellers, including Amazon. Bob, thanks so much. Can't wait to hear about your next project. hope we've helped motivate you, even if just a little, to realize, folks, that it is never too late to get off the couch and get into your life. And of course, you can find Growing Boulder not only here on the radio, but also Growing Boulder TV, growingbolder.com, and now in Growing Boulder Magazine. Check it out, the new Growing Boulder Magazine. We think you're going to like it. And if you haven't already, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter where we can keep you up to date on all things Growing Boulder. We'll see you next time. Growing Boulder is a production of Boulder Broadcasting, all rights reserved. This program was recorded live at the studios of WMFE Orlando. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Jackie Carlin, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producer is Katie Widrick. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member is you. Remember, when it comes to growing Boulder, it's not about age. It's about attitude. Stand.